Attention, all troops. She's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Reckless. G.I. Joe as a play concept was a complete package for my friends and I at the time. Mostly because it was completely multimedia. Not only did you have the physical toys and an animated series, but you also had the written word. You had comic books. And we knew that G.I. Joe was special, mostly because we reacted to it in ways that we had never reacted to any other toy. You see, my friends and I were all Marvel readers. Almost every comic we bought was Marvel. And... Each of us had a set of books that we liked, and very rarely did we go outside of our lanes. That didn't mean we didn't read the other comic books. No, we would go over to each other's houses and read each other's comics. It was a great use of resources and exposed you to new comic books all the time. Plus, it was a stepping stone to discuss the characters and just a great way to kill time. With G.I. Joe, things were different. Because it tied into something else that was happening. It tied into all these figures that we were collecting. My friend got the first issue of G.I. Joe. That basically meant he claimed it. I went over his house when he got it, and he said it was really good. Couldn't wait to read it. So I remember sitting down on the floor next to his bed, and opening it up and reading it, and thinking about all of my figures at home, and the action that was going on in the comics, and how I was going to reproduce some of that the next time I played with my toys. By the time I finished reading it, I wanted to read it again. And I guess at that point I knew I was going to go buy this comic book despite the fact that my friend already had it. This is not something we had ever done before, but I knew I wanted to have this at home to reread. So later that day, I went and bought G.I. Joe number one, and then I would continue to buy G.I. Joe for a decade afterwards. Now this was a betrayal of our unofficial system, but I wasn't alone. As it turns out, my other friend who played G.I. Joe with us did the exact same thing, although he didn't start until issue two, and believe me, for years afterwards he was regretting not having issue one. He would talk about it all the time. I wish I had bought issue one. Of course, he could always read ours, but the attachment to the stories, the want to reread them and then play them out with our figures, especially during those first few years, was so strong that it altered everything about how we had done things up to that point. G.I. Joe was a paradigm-altering release. It did things that other toy lines had done before, but it just did them better and more so than had been done. And the cornerstone of that was the comic book. So on today's show, I'm going to talk to you about the G.I. Joe comic book. We'll talk about the people behind the scenes making the comic. We'll talk about its creation, the creative process behind it, its success, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, was a comic book published by Marvel from 1982 to 1994. It was based on Hasbro's historically successful and soon-to-be-very-successful-again line of toys, G.I. Joe. For most of its run, the comic book was written by one person, Larry Hama, who took great pains to not only bring a certain amount of military realism where he could to the comic, but also a tremendous amount of depth to the characters, every one of them. That meant that he was very deeply involved in the comic, and we'll talk a little bit more about Hama and his style and everything he did for the comic a little bit later. At the dawn of the 80s, Hasbro was looking over at Kenner, who had produced the Star Wars figures, and noticed the 3.75-inch figures were selling very well and thought, perhaps we could relaunch G.I. Joe in the same format. They knew that Star Wars was very popular, and tried to figure out exactly what it is about Star Wars that had made it popular. And they decided it was because it was based on something that already existed. All the characters, all the vehicles and playsets had a backstory. Then, famously by chance, in 1981, Hasbro CEO Stephen Hassenfeld, one of the descendants of the original Hassenfeld brothers who founded Hasbro, met Marvel Comics president Jim Galton, at a charity fundraiser, Hassenfeld started talking to Galton and mentioned that they were going to relaunch G.I. Joe. And Galton said, why don't you hire Marvel as creative consultants? Now at the same time, an editor at Marvel named Larry Hama was developing a comic series called Fury Force, which was about a team of futuristic super soldiers who were a part of an organization called S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. is this world-protecting super spy group headed by Nick Fury, and the Fury Force would have been run by Nick Fury's son, and it would have introduced all these new interesting characters to the Marvel Universe. How Hama had gotten that job is interesting. Basically, as Hama described it, they had gone to everyone else at Marvel trying to get them to work on this title, and all of them had passed. Finally, they brought it to him, and he was all aboard. According to Hama, if they had asked me to write Barbie, I would have done that too. This concept, which wasn't very popular internally at Marvel, had a lot of parallels with G.I. Joe, potentially, if it could be done right. So a meeting was held, and Larry Hama, Tom DeFalco, Jim Shooter, Nelson Yamtov, and Archie Goodwin of Marvel were there, all to discuss G.I. Joe with people from Hasbro. It was at this meeting that Goodwin gets credited with coming up with the concept of Cobra as the recurring villain. Now, this might seem like a leap for Hasbro and G.I. Joe, but it was very natural for Marvel because S.H.I.E.L.D. would have been fighting a terrorist organization called HYDRA, which has historically been their enemy in the comic books, and they are a terrorist organization. So you just take HYDRA out of it and put in a Cobra, and you get Cobra Command. Before this meeting, though, Hasbro hadn't even considered that they would need an enemy of G.I. Joe. It was just the type of out-of-the-box thinking that Hasbro was looking for for this toy line, and they hired Marvel right after that meeting. Now, without Larry Hama, there is no G.I. Joe, not in the way that we see it. His dedication to this comic book and its stories was tremendous. It was world-building at its finest. So let's talk a little bit about this talented creator. Larry Hama was born on June 7th, 1949 in New York City. Because it ties in with what would happen in G.I. Joe, you should know that 
Hama was very interested in martial arts as a young man and studied judo and later would study swordsmanship and archery. He also would join the military and has a military background, which would serve him very well in writing G.I. Joe. Despite all of these other interests and serving in the military, Larry really wanted to become a painter, and he attended Manhattan's High School of Art and Design. After his stint in the military, Hama wanted to be an artist, and he would eventually settle on just being a visual artist, but he did do some acting and had some minor roles on the TV show MASH and Saturday Night Live. He would also appear on Broadway in the 1976 production of Stephen Sondheim's Pacific Overtures. That acting background would also serve him well in making the characters feel more lived in and in what sort of dialogue they would speak. As you can see, Hama's background skills merge perfectly together for the work he's about to do. G.I. Joe is not the only thing that Hama is known for. He was a writer on dozens of books at Marvel. If you're a fan of comics, you might recognize one of his other famous creations, which was Bucky O'Hare. He also was a writer and artist on a comic that I collected at the time that I don't think a lot of other people did, The Inth Man, The Ultimate Ninja, which they only did 16 issues of, but it was a lot of fun, and you could definitely feel the G.I. Joe influences in it, which is probably why I liked it. Hemo also acted as editor for The Nam, which was a fairly long-running book about the Vietnam War, and it was renowned for its realistic take on the war. That shouldn't be a surprise. Hemo's style reflected an attention to detail and realism when it came to things about the military. He worked in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers during the Vietnam War, which gave him a lot of information, but he also did a lot of research trying to stay up to date and would frequent military bookstores and gives a lot of credit to a friend of his, Lee Russell, who is a military historian who helped him with research. The thing about G.I. Joe as a reader of the comic is that it had all of these overlapping stories. According to Hama, We've been following one basic storyline pretty much in the comic for 50 issues. It's sort of like an extended soap opera. Although I try to have a real solid resolution at the end of each book, but I like to keep some plot threads going. There's a sort of episodic quality to some of the earlier books. Like one episode will last six issues. That will resolve completely, but two issues into it, another thread may have started. At any given time, there's probably about three overlapping threads. It helped that Hasbro was very open when it came to the comic book. Yes, they wanted the toys that they were creating to be put into the comic, but the actual writing and the stories, he was given almost free reign, or at least Marvel in general was given free reign over what would happen there. And I love that Hama himself, when he said he wrote, he would start writing and he wasn't sure how it was going to end. He would just start it up and then let it unfold before him. Talking about the Hasbro relationship, Hama said, We're the final word on what happens with the book. Hasbro has been extremely open about it. I don't write this as a kiddie book. I don't write G.I. Joe any differently from the way I write Wolverine. And that was a big shock when you were reading G.I. Joe as a kid, because it did feel like anything that was going to be associated with a toy was going to be for kids, that it wasn't going to have some trace of adult sensibilities something that would make you realize that this went beyond what you normally read as a kid and made it more exciting. While Larry was the main 
writer for G.I. Joe. He was not the only one. A couple other people got in the door, including Herb Trimpe, Stephen Grant, Peter Quinones, and Eric Fine. The first issue of G.I. Joe was published in June of 1982, and it contained two stories written by Hama. The first story was called Operation Lady Doomsday, and it was drawn by Herb Trimpe, who also worked on most of the early issues. And as I said, he was a writer. He would write issue nine. The second story, Hot Potato, was drawn by Don Perlin. Right off the bat, you could tell that this was well-planned. This issue introduced a lot of the concepts that would define G.I. Joe during its entire run, including the original 13 G.I. Joe members and two recurring villains that would show up that weren't in action figure form, and those were Cobra Commander and the Baroness. Now, the Baroness wasn't going to be an action figure. We didn't know anything about this character, and yet she would become a steady presence in the comic books and eventually would get her own figure. It's the earliest example of a character appearing in the comic that predated the idea that they would become an action figure. That made it even more exciting to read the comic book because you thought, oh wow, the Baroness, is she going to be an action figure? You would see that with vehicles and bases, and these things would just make you dream of more. Hammer was asked upon writing this first issue if he thought it was going to become as legendary as it has become over the years. According to Hama, We all figured the book would last two years at the most. That was the average for a toy book at the time. I think Transformers is the only other toy book that came close. The first few issues tended to tie things up neatly, but you could already see what Hama was talking about when he was going to layer storylines. In May of 1983, issue 11, and issue 11 is famous because it is the first that would introduce new toys into the book, and it would show you how they were going to do that over time. And that is where they would introduce Destro. Destro was one of my early favorite figures. He's this metal-headed guy with a deep V-cut shirt open with a amulet. Just really cool looking. I'll show you how to get G.I. Joe. Destro! Of course it's Destro, you fool! Who else can help us? We'll attack here! Yeah. Terrifying G.I. Joe! Destro is his name! Destro is his name! G.I. Joe! American hero! Fight Cobra and Destro! Where those jets come from? G.I. Joe headquarters! We've got to find it! But will they? Read the further adventures of G.I. Joe in Marvel Comics! During this first year, there was some growing pains, and Hama did get some pushback on some of his ideas. In an interview Hama did for Yojo.com, he said, I had much more interference at first, but by the time I was into the third year, I was the only person who knew who all the characters were, and nobody else was taking the time to read all the back issues and try to keep up with the complex storyline. In the very first issue, I wrote a scene where Hawk is briefing the Joes for the mission to rescue Burkhart, and he tells them rather succinctly that a soldier's job is to do the unthinkable and be forgotten. The editor excised this line and substituted some jingoistic right-wing rant that I have had to live with ever since. At that point, I made it clear that I should have first whack at any corrections. So you could see Hama was already trying to assert himself in the book and give it his vision of what G.I. Joe would be. That didn't mean he wouldn't get interference or input, but he made such a deep and complex story that it was very hard for anyone else to keep up. But it also meant he took it very seriously and 
created backstories for all the characters. And those would show up as a dossier for every character he had in the book. Those dossiers would be spotted by somebody at Marvel, who was blown away by the detail he kept. And if you were a G.I. Joe toy collector, those would become the file cards that you found on the back of every one of your G.I. Joe figures. Although, Hammers were a lot more detailed. Those cards themselves would eventually become a selling point. You would go to the store, you'd look at your figure, then you'd take it off and turn it around, and you just didn't see, oh, what other toys could you buy? There would be this info block teaching you everything you needed to know about the toy you were about to buy. And those original 13 and everyone who came after them was defined by Larry. The creative process behind coming up with these characters was informed by Marvel. Hasbro would send him character sketches and descriptions, very brief, of the character's abilities and military specialties. Then Hannah would take it and then make these detailed dossiers, trying to give them personalities and real deep background stories. Hama said about these file cards, It has to be read on two levels. A 10-year-old kid has to be able to read it and think, it's absolutely straight, but there should be a joke in there for the adult. One of the factors that helped sell G.I. Joe was that the salesman who sold it to retailers used those dossiers as a selling point. As you might guess, the characters themselves were what really mattered to Hama. He even said, events and continuity never meant anything to me. The important thing was the characters. Over the years, Hama would actually base the personalities of his characters on people he knew. And the fact that he knew them helped to ground them even more and helped him to understand these characters and let them evolve over time. I mentioned the Baroness earlier, who was a breakthrough character who started in the comics and eventually would get their own toy. The reasoning behind the creation of the Baroness is a very comic booky reason. According to Hama, the reason I created the Baroness was that all the Cobra characters that Hasbro designed had masks covering their entire faces. That may be desirable in a toy, but it certainly doesn't work in a comic where you have to have acting going on. So again, the artistic sensibilities of Hama, maybe even his acting background, being brought in to think about what's going on in this toy line. You had all of these faceless Cobras, and that's great if you're just going to shoot at them. But he's telling stories that involve them actually saying and doing and reacting. And so the Baroness was a great addition to Cobra in that she didn't have to wear a mask. If you had tuned in in 1982 onto your television set, you would have seen something on American TV that you had never seen before. A commercial promoting a comic book. And it went a little something like this. She's been kidnapped by Cobra. We have no alternative. Call in G.I. Joe. fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. He never gives up. He'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe. Who's leader of the Joe team? Fox. The America's best. He's in control. Now that was very clever on Hasbro's part because at the time, television regulation said that toy commercials could not contain more than 10 seconds of animation. If they didn't show any of the characters outside of what was in the comic books, they were able to do 
a full 30 seconds of animation. Now you couldn't see that commercial, but it was animation. Hasbro would pay Marvel $5 million to produce those commercials, and they did so through their animation division, Marvel Productions. Hama talked about the commercials saying, There were only a few seconds of animation you could have in a toy commercial, and you had to show the toy so people wouldn't get totally deluded. Somebody at Hasbro, who was actually sort of a genius, named Bob Pruprish, realized that a comic book was protected under the First Amendment, and there couldn't be restrictions based on how you advertise for a publication. So you could imagine tuning into a kid's TV show in the 80s and seeing commercials for the toy line, which would have a few seconds of animation, followed by kids playing with toys. Then you would have commercials for the comic book, which was fully animated and featured those same animated bits from the toys, but just longer. And then they would create a cartoon series based on this, and they would just show clips from the cartoon series. So three ways you're getting hit with advertising for this toy line. They described it as a transmedia narrative, something that would become standard across the toy industry. Before moving on to the release of the comic and how well it did, I just want to talk about one storyline, issue 26 and 27, which was Snake Eyes, the origins told in two parts. Snake Eyes was this mysterious character in G.I. Joe. The figure itself was a unpainted, all-dressed-in-black figure that being dressed all in black actually was brilliant on Hasbro's part because they didn't have to paint it. It could just be black plastic, so it was a cheaper figure to make at the time. This origin story was one of Hama's favorite to write because it really fleshed out a character that everybody was interested in. And you would think that the mystery might lead to disappointment, but Larry just brought depth and made the character somehow even cooler now that we knew more about them. If you decide to read the comic, it's a great one to jump to after you got sort of the basics down of reading the first year of issues. Now, as you might guess, when G.I. Joe first came out, comic book fans just weren't into it because it was a toy book. It was going to be related to this figure line. As even Larry Hama said, maybe it would last two years and then it would go away. But as time went on, people started to realize something special was going on. It also helped that within two months of the launch of the toy line, one in five boys aged 5 to 12 in the U.S. had two or more G.I. Joe toys in their collection. By 1988, two out of every three boys in that similar age group owned at least a G.I. Joe figure. And as you might guess, they would be drawn to the comic book because of their interest in the toy. But once they were in, they were hooked. By 1985, G.I. Joe was Marvel's top-selling subscription title and was receiving 1,200 letters per week. And what a great time for Marvel to get these new comic readers because a lot of them were young and needed a hook for why they might want to read a comic book, which helped to offset the fact that in the comic book press at the time, the book was being totally ignored. But you go in to buy a G.I. Joe comic for the first time, you look to the right, you see Captain America there, you think, well, maybe I'll read that. You pick it up and you think, hmm, that's pretty good. Suddenly, more people are buying comic books. When the book first started selling, it was peaking at about 158,000 copies per month, which is pretty good. But then when they started advertising, that shot up to 331,475 copies per month in 1985. Now, remember I said that 
They were getting 1,200 letters every week. Hammer would read every one of them and sent out 50 to 100 handwritten replies every week to anyone who ever wrote to G.I. Joe. I wrote to a few comics. I'm not sure if I ever wrote to G.I. Joe. As a kid who liked to write letters to comic books, knowing that Hammer might have read something that I sent to them, even if he didn't respond, that's pretty great. Because I always assumed that whatever I sent just wound up in the trash after a while, which is why eventually I stopped writing letters. Those commercials also had an interesting side effect in that they were seen by people who traditionally weren't reading comic books. Hama thought that the commercials opened up the book to not just this young audience of boys, but as he said, I get a lot of letters from young housewives who sort of started watching the cartoons with their kids and sort of started getting into the characters. And then somewhere along the line, they picked up the comic book and they started following the stories and got caught up in the continuity. This sort of crossover appeal would influence the book and give it some really great strong female characters, most notably Scarlet and Lady J, who are frequent stars of the book, even though very few of the initial G.I. Joe action figures were female. The initial run of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, ran from 1982 until 1994, but there would be other G.I. Joe Marvel properties. There would also be other things outside of Marvel, things that would happen later, in terms of G.I. Joe reboots, G.I. Joe new stories, some of them written by Larry Hama, just not at Marvel. But I'm only going to cover what was happening at Marvel. From 1985 to 1988, G.I. Joe would publish the G.I. Joe yearbooks that would create four of them that contained recaps of the year's events and an original story, often other bonuses in there, really fun, sort of similar to annuals. And a couple of things they did in the G.I. Joe comics were similar to annuals but with a little different twist that made them unique. For example, G.I. Joe's The Order of Battle, which showcased the vehicles and personnel of both G.I. Joe and Cobra. Real fun to own. From 1986 to 1989, they ran the G.I. Joe Special Missions, which was a series focused on things you didn't see in the main series. So even more storyline. They had something called the European Missions, which were published in the late 80s. So outside of America, G.I. Joe was not known as G.I. Joe. Wouldn't make sense for them. They were called Action Force. And Action Force Monthly was a comic that appeared in the United Kingdom. They would reprint these as the European Missions. And they did 15 issues of that. G.I. Joe Comics Magazine were basically a digest format of original G.I. Joe stories. They were released between 1986 and 1988. In that same late 80s, they would release Tales of G.I. Joe, which were a glossy reprint of the first 15 issues. They did something similar in 2002 when they made some trade paperbacks reprinting the early issues of G.I. Joe. They also did something kind of fun and crazy when they did G.I. Joe and the Transformers in 1987, and that had the Joe's team up with the Autobots, and Cobra team up with the Decepticons. Those were a lot of fun, but quite controversial amongst my group of friends. They would also do a second generation of that. G.I. Joe would last for 12 years, which is a massive success. But as the 90s started to roll around, things started to change. Sales of the toys had fallen off, as had the sales of the comic book, and it was very difficult for them to find an artist to keep on staff for the book because Marvel wasn't really supporting it anymore. 
but neither was the readership because people who had started reading this at age eight, nine, were now 20. And even if they continued to like the stories, they were an adult or at least a teenager. And even if they were reading comics anymore, they might not feel comfortable buying what in some ways had started to be looked at again as a kiddie book. It's hard to shake the association with toys, even though the toys helped sell it and it helped sell the toys. Ultimately, it was always going to be associated with toys. And so anyone who would be uncomfortable buying a comic book about toys and someone in their late teens might be that person if they're still buying comic books, just stopped reading it. The final issue of G.I. Joe was called A Letter from Snake Eyes, and it's told from his perspective, recollecting what had happened over the years and all of his friends who had died. So a sort of bittersweet retrospective. The G.I. Joe continuity would be picked up again by IDW Publishing. That started in 2010 and lasted until 2018. So the adventures of G.I. Joe continue just much later on. G.I. Joe the comic was special because it came out at just the right moment. It was a time in the United States where patriotism was not as frowned upon as it had been before and would be later on. It was a time when they had figured out how to circumvent advertising restrictions. It was a time when comic books were still very popular and the media around kids was a bit of a Wild West show. All of those things together, combined with the storytelling ability of Larry Hama, made G.I. Joe perfect for its time. While it would influence toy lines that would come after it, it was really a high watermark in terms of synergy and creativity between different creative entities, as each one would be influenced by the other. Toys influencing comics, influencing animated series, and all of them influencing the kids at home who were gobbling this stuff up, myself included. If you have the opportunity to read older comic books, please check out G.I. Joe. The entire run of it is great, and that layered storytelling really works for a modern audience. While they might not be making the toys the way they were, or they might not be showing this animated series, the comic allows the fandom associated with that to continue. And I owe it a giant debt of gratitude personally, because my friends wanted to stop playing with their G.I. Joe figures much earlier than I wanted to. And the mythology my friends and I were creating around our playing was derailed by them being gone. But the comic book allowed me to continue to enjoy G.I. Joe for years afterwards. And for that, I owe a big debt of gratitude to Larry Hama. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter. He's at twitter.com slash peachypixel8. That's the word peachy, the word pixel, and the number eight. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show. If you have some time and if you can give the show a good review wherever you download it, it would help other people find it. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to everyone over at Patreon who has been helping to support the show. If you would like to support the show, please check out patreon.com retroist. If you join Patreon, you'll get member-only episodes 
access to the Retroist Discord, which is a great community where we discuss all sorts of retro topics. It's a great group of people. I'd like to thank some supporters, including Gary Heather, Thomas Baldwin, Tony Chirichetti, and Eric Escott. Thank you very much for all wonderful retro people. If you like what you hear on The Retroist, you might want to try the Retroist newsletter, The Act of Discovery. There I cover things that I research and things that relate to it. You can subscribe to that at newsletter.retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. And now you know, and knowing's half the battle. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.